has a, a future for us that is beyond imagination. So turn over in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, and I know we covered 6 through 8 last week. We, we tagged into it because it kind of, there's an overlap. It's kind of hard to tell whether these verses go with this stuff right before it or they come in and introduce something, but maybe they, they kind of do both. But um, the first thing in, in verses 6, 6 through 10 is to celebrate Jesus and prepare for his return. And in this, he says, um, John says, then I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is, uh, it, it, it's just an amazing place as, as we come there because Everybody, as we come in here, everybody in, in the planet, everybody here on this globe, in this world, has an invitation. Everybody has an invitation. We either have an invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb, or we have an invitation to the, uh, the great supper of God, which is coming down and in the book, so and it's beyond anything that, that we could imagine. Think about all of the images that we've seen in this book, all of the different looks and, and things that we see coming, and, and they're incredible, and they give us insight into the battle that rages in our world and in the unseen world, and, and the things that are going on all around us today, the things that we see, the things that we don't see. In the image of the, mar the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's absolutely beyond imagination. I mean, really, when you come into it, um, and, and he comes in here, and, and we see this word hallelujah uh, three or four times coming in in chapter 19, um, and, and it's an interesting thing because this is the only place in the New Testament this word occurs, um, and, and it's, um, it's a praise to God. It's a praise God. It is praise God, and, and they're coming in, and he's going back to um, the imagery of the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms 113 through 118 that they would sing um, at Passover, before Passover, 113 and 114, then 115 through 18, after the meal, and, and they celebrated what God had done for him. They celebrated the deliverance of God. They celebrated 
um, the freedom from bondage that they found in Egypt. And it's hallelujah now at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we, we come from Passover to the consummation of the kingdom of God. And, and so as you come in here, um, he comes in and he says, for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. When we come in here in, in the um, Old Testament, in Jewish life, there were three phases to a marriage or to a wedding in Jewish life. And, and so you have three things that happen. The first thing would be betrothal. Um, back in the day, if you were going to, if you wanted to marry a girl, you would go, a young man would go to her father's home and he would meet with the father and he would arrange a bride price. He would pay the father for the bride. So in today's world, that would have worked out pretty good for me. Um, in today's world, it actually, I paid for the wedding. So I don't know what went wrong between then and now, but something went wrong and Bob's saying, that's exactly right, something went wrong. Um, so, you know, you, you come in, but this is the way that it would go. So the young man would go, he would arrange a price with the father of, of his, um, his, his love, you know, this girl that he wanted to marry and he would arrange the price. They would settle on the price and then the young man would leave. As he left, here's what happened. He is now basically married to this woman but he will not be with her at all until the preparation and the marriage feast has taken place. So he would go back home after that. He would not have any physical intimacy with her at all whatsoever. He would leave and he would go back, but he was responsible for her. As a matter of fact, if he died during this period, she would be considered a widow. So this, this is a significant thing. And this, this feeds in when you talk about Mary and Joseph and everything that went, went down there, it gives you a better understanding of, of what was happening in that time. So he would go, he would pay the bride price, he would go back to his home, he would go to his father's house, and then in his father's house, he would prepare a room. He would prepare a room for her and him to make a home together. So he would go, and this would typically take approximately a year. So he would go and he would make preparation to bring his bride into his home and make her his own. So this was the time of preparation. So it would be called the time of preparation. And then at the conclusion of that time, while the bride is waiting, she doesn't know exactly when the wedding's gonna happen. I like, this is fun, you know? Can you imagine a bride today not knowing when the date is? Um, or all of the details are, you know, the flowers, the caterer, the, the food, the venue, the, you know, all this other stuff that goes on with the wedding. Well, that's not the case there. He went, he prepared, he arranged, his father prepared, their family had a feast that would be prepared. Then he would go with his buddies, with the, with the bridal part, the groom, the groomsman, they would go, and as they would go, she didn't know exactly when he was coming. And so they would have an idea, you know, we know it's about to happen. I'm sure, you know, they had their little you know, Facebook group of the day, whatever it was, chatting it out and, and uh, you know, texting back and forth. Have you seen him or whatever? I don't know how it worked back in that day, but it worked just like it works today. And they made it happen. They communicated with each other and he comes back 
with the bridal party and they take her and her bridesmaids, the, the, the women with her, the young women with her, and they would take her back and then they would go from there to the marriage feast. He would take her to his father's house and they would have the great supper, the wedding supper. And in this wedding supper, they would celebrate and then he would take his bride and they would consummate the wedding, so, or the marriage. So this is the way that it would take place. This, is, this uh, is interesting. So in Jewish life, there are three phases of a marriage. There's betrothal, which is not engagement. It's, it's way bigger than that. It's, it's you're married, but, but you're married and you're responsible, but you have no privileges. So you're, you're, you're betrothed, you have preparation, and then you have the wedding supper. So as, as this all took place, this is, this is an amazing picture, and you're coming in here. Now, you can jump over from there, and you're going, well, we left Revelation way off. No, we haven't left it, because everything in here builds on everything else in the Bible coming up. There's nothing new happening here. So as, as we come in, if you go back, remember when Jesus has the Last Supper with the disciples, the Passover feast, the Hallel, as they would come and they would sing probably Psalm 115, 16, 17, and 18, maybe all of them, one of them. It says after they had the supper, they sung a hymn together. That's what they sang. They sang these psalms. So as they come in, he, he's sitting there in chapter 14. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Um, if I, it, he says, if in my father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, would I, wouldn't I have not told you? He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, if I go to prepare a place for you, if I go to prepare a place for you, preparation, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the, the disciples, they understood coming in there. They would have known. They would have seen this picture their whole life. They would have seen their friends go off. They would have seen men and women join together through this process, this three-stage process. They understood it, and they knew what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I'm preparing for a marriage. I'm preparing for something. I'm preparing for something that's way bigger than this world. So, so they come in. So this, this John 14, one through three, it's a promise and a metaphor showing God's people are the bride of Christ. So it's showing us that we are his bride. And when we come in there and, and we talk about it, you know, I, I, you know, somebody comes up to me and says, you're a bride. I might poke them in the nose, you know? Um, I, I'm not a bride. I'm not a, I'm not a girl. I'm a man. Um, but, but when in this, we have to understand it's not in that sense, it's, it's something way greater. It's a picture of what God is doing, showing that God's people are his betrothed. They're his beloved. They are belonging to him, that, that we have a relationship with him that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine, and Jesus is returning. He's telling them, I am coming back. I am preparing, and I am coming back to consummate the kingdom, to bring this thing to where it goes. So it goes on um, to explain how, how of all of it, but Jesus granted it to 
granted it and his people were to ready themselves for it. So we're being called to ready ourselves as we come in here to ready ourselves for this great feast that God has for us, to ready ourselves for eternity, to celebrate what God is doing, to celebrate Jesus, to prepare for his return, to know that he has something for you as his child, that he has a hope for you, that he has a future for you, that he has prepared for you, that that this world is not what it's about, but instead there is something that we are looking to. There is something that we are leaving behind and going to. So this is where we come in and go with that. In Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13, Paul said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.24 is another great thing to remember, and it says there, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. I mean, this, this means, to me, this means a tremendous amount. This verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, tells me that when God leads, God will take care of it. He will be faithful regardless of what it is, regardless of the circumstances, that when God calls us, when he betroths us, and he is going to prepare, prepare this place for us that we are to prepare to move into his presence, just like the the groom is preparing for us. Jesus, the groom of all creation in all time, is preparing for his bride, the church, and we as his church are to prepare ourselves for him. And it's something that we celebrate and make known to everyone around us, and and we are called to live it out. And, And so as we come in here, he says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride, his church, his people, us, have made herself ready, has made herself ready. And in other words, it says that the church has to act. We have to participate. I have to participate. You have to participate as people of God. We are called into this relationship with him, but we participate. He is preparing for us and we are preparing for him. And he goes on to say, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. So, so the second thing is here that, that as he comes in, not only do we have to act, God makes it possible. He's the one who calls us to salvation. He is the one who saves us. We don't do it. It's granted to us. I didn't make myself right with God. I didn't fix myself. I didn't cure myself of my sin problem. I didn't wipe the slate clean. Jesus did that. It was granted to me. But I have to participate in the act. There's this tension there that comes in that salvation is solely a work of God, but salvation that is a solely work, a work of God also changes us and gives us a heart and a desire for him, that we have a longing for him. Another way of putting it is, if if somebody says, I said a prayer 30 years ago and nothing has ever changed in their life, they don't worship God, they don't read a Bible, they don't go to church, they just believe that their ticket's been punched,
Has the bride made herself ready? No. That's a harsh, hard truth. And it's something that we have this tension we hold on to. We, we hold that salvation is something that, that's held and cannot be taken away from us. Yet on the other hand, we see that salvation is something that changes us. And if there's no change, there's no betrothal. There's no preparation. There's no marriage. There has to be something that takes place when we come to Christ. And that's what the word repent means. It means that we turn from sin and self to following God. It means that he changes us. That fundamentally something in there changes in our heart and our desire. It's something that we just can't get away from. So as we come in, we look and, and we celebrate what Jesus has done. We are to celebrate and make it known to everyone out around us. And we are to live it out because the ones who have been invited to the supper of the lamb are blessed is what he says. And these are the true words of God. So he's calling these people in. And he's saying that these are people, this is God's church and God's people are preparing themselves for him. The next thing in, in verses 11 through 16, um, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords." Behold, a white horse. Look, pay attention. Stop everything and look, there's a white horse. And, and when heaven is open, John sees Jesus faithful and true. He's described as faithful and true. He is, he is there because he is faithful and true. Jesus is faithful to us. He is faithful to his character. He is faithful to the promises that he's made. He is true. He is the truth. He said that he was the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He alone can judge the wicked and vindicate his name and his followers. It's, it's him. He alone can do it. He is faithful and true, and he judges in, in righteousness. He judges, and he makes war on evil. So he's the real deal. There's nothing false in Jesus. He is it. He is the true thing. And he's seated on a horse. So <clears throat> this is interesting because the last time Jesus was seated on something in this world, it was a donkey. And there's a difference. There's a huge difference. When a king goes to war, a king sits on a horse. In the old days, when the king went to war, he sat on a horse and he went to conquer. He went to win. He went to finish the battle. He went in there for a purpose. <clears throat> and when a king rode a donkey, he went to make peace. Jesus rode a donkey 
In Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Zechariah prophesies this centuries before the coming of Christ. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to make peace with us, peace for us with God. He made peace between us and God, rode in and did this by dying on a cross. But when he returns, he's not returning on a donkey. He's not coming to make peace. He's coming for battle. He is coming to finish everything once and for all. And his eyes are like a flame of fire piercing into the depths of our soul. His eyes are like a flame of fire. In other words, he knows our hearts. He judges our thoughts and intentions. Just like Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He is able to correctly judge us. He sees because he knows all things. His eyes are like a flame of fire and there's nothing hidden from him. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything that, that passes through us Jesus knows. He knows all things. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. Um, he has many diadems on his head. Um, they're a sim- symbol of kingship. And if you go back, you'll see that through this, the beast, either, you know, he had these 10 crowns and, and you had numbered crowns, seven crowns, 10 crowns, whatever the number of crowns might have been as we've read through this. But when we come here and we see Jesus, there's one head, And there are an uncounted number of crowns. There is not a count on the crowns. They're not numbered. And that means um, that there is an undefined multiple of crowns on here. And in other words, Jesus is beyond in power. His kingship is beyond all things. His reign is eternal and his followers will reign with him. He has many crowns on his head. Or maybe, you know, the song we sang growing up, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. And, and so you come in and you see this and, and we come there and his reign is eternal and his followers, that's us, his people, the church, we will reign with him. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You see, he has this name on him. He goes on, it says that he has this name written on him that no one knows but himself. And we come in there and and we think, you know, that's kind of strange. Because I meet people here all the time. Every Sunday, you know, somebody comes in, I go introduce myself to them. Hey, I'm Scott, what's your name? And they tell me their name. Didn't work that way in his day. 
Did not go that way in the first century necessarily in, in their world because he's, um, he has this name that no one knows and it's significant because the full revelation of who he is will be given when he returns and he judges. We don't really have the fullness of all of the knowledge of how all of this is gonna happen, but the day that we come to this supper, the day that it takes place, what he's saying is everything's gonna be made known. We're gonna know everything that there is to know. Or as Paul, you know, he said, now we see as though through a dark glassly. But, but then we will know face to face. I will know him as I am fully known. So we come in here, and, and in John's day, to know someone, to know someone's name meant to have some control over them. You had some control over them if you knew their name. As a matter of fact, um, it, it's kind of true even today. For instance, if I shout somebody's name out right now, there's a thing that happens. Or if you're walking out the door, and, and I go, hey, Call your name. You'll, you'll, you know, probably think I'm going to kill him. But uh, you know, why is he doing this? And or or maybe if if you walked in while everybody was turned around looking, you were wondering what's going on. You know what's happening. But but that's kind of it's knowing your name um, and to know not only to have some control over them, but to know or to share somehow um, in their character. So no one has control over the sovereign Christ. No one has control over his character. No one fully understands him and knows him today, but we will one day know that. He has this robe that's dipped in blood before the battle begins. So in one sense, this precedes the battle. So, so if we come in and we look at it, you go, well, the battle has, we're not even to the battle yet, yet his robes are covered in blood. Whose blood is it? Well, one way to look at that is very simple. It's his own blood. What did he do? He shed his blood. He won the battle on the cross. Um, the battle is not won in Revelation. The battle was won on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Look, Jesus won the battle. It's done. It's finished. He said it. It is finished. We're, we're just in the mop-up of it. It's over. It's done. And so in one sense, when you come in, the blood on his robes, it's his own blood. It's the blood of Jesus shed for us, shed for our sins, shed for our shame, uh, for our shame to, to uh, bring us back into a right relationship with him. So the final battle in that regard is already finished, but it can also represent the blood of his enemies that will be shed, that we see in Isaiah 63.3 says, I have treading the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So it's a whole nother picture of Jesus coming and, and you know, um, uh, you know the, the battle hymn of the Republic, you know, the, the song. Well, that's what this is about. We, we think it's like a war, you know, like a, a national thing. Go America. No, 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 no. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord who is trampling on the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's not talking about us. That is not talking about any nation, 
anything. That is talking about the sovereign God of all creation, Jesus coming and trampling down the forces of evil and those who follow the beast. That's the picture, and that's what's happening. It's a picture of the seriousness of sin in God's response. It's, it's what he wants to do. So it's a picture of how Jesus is going to deal with those who reject him. And, and it's graphic and it shows us the totality of his power. So as we come in here and, and we look, we, we see what's going to happen. So this section ends with this reminder that God alone is sovereign. Jesus wins and that... Um, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. In that day, you know, the Caesar might say, I am the king of kings. I am the lord of lords. And God is saying, no, no, no. You think you are, but you're not. You're not. There is no king on this planet that comes anywhere near who he is. It's written on his robe. It's written on his thigh. And you can go back to where Abraham sends his servant to go, to go find a wife for Isaac. And he makes this oath with him and he sticks his hand under his thigh and you go, that's really weird. You know, if, if you go to do something today, what do we shake hands? You know, but, but in that day, that's how they would make this oath. That's how they would pledge an oath and that's where your hand would be. Your hand would be on the name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's where your sword would hang. It is a place, and it is written on his thigh, and it is written on, <clears throat> on his robe. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then finally, in verses 17 through 21, we come in and it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come. Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was, putting, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. Satan and all of his followers, all of those who have the mark of the beast, will be eternally condemned. That's, that's where we're coming here. So we have two feasts. We have the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we have the feast of God over here. And, and they are two um, very starkly different feasts. This is a buffet. This buffet right here, nobody wants to go to this buffet. You do not want to go to the buffet of the feast of God. Look, if you go to the feast of God buffet, you're on the menu. That's what it's saying. You are on the menu. Another way of putting it is, we, we get invites all the time, right? Maybe you go to your mailbox, you get an invite. You get an invite from your friend to a wedding, or you get an invite from your friend's son or daughter to their wedding. 
And that's a nice thing. It's, it's something you go, you know what, this is nice. I'm, I want to be a part of this. I want to go to this. I want to attend. Um, this will be something that I can go and, and celebrate because it's someone I know and I love and I care about. And, and it's, it's an honor to be invited to go. So you look at that and, and that's something you go, wow, that's great. That's something that is good. Or you get a certified letter from the IRS that invites you to an audit. That is not what you want, do you? You see, there are two invitations. There's an invitation to an event that's amazing. It's an event that's a celebration. It's an event that you look forward to. It's an event that has meaning. It is an event that maybe you've watched for years as you come in and you see this thing take place and you get to go and to celebrate and participate and see it all happen. And, and you get to watch it up close. And I mean, I've done, I've done scads of weddings. And, and, and it, it's always an amazing thing. I mean, you, you see two people that, that there's something there. there there's a, a glow. There really is. There's something there that, as you see, you don't typically see on people's faces. And it's an excitement, and it's an anticipation, and, and it's something of, of two people preparing to come together for life. And, and this is an amazing thing. But the supper of God, it's just grueling to think about. It's just difficult imagine. See, the great supper of God will make a letter from the IRS look like nothing to worry about. Because those who attend the supper of God become the meal, and then they face eternal torment. That's what's going down here in these pictures. Jesus said this, Matthew 13, 36 to 43, it said, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, the parable of the wheat in the field. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. When Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares, he's, telling, he's talking about the marriage feast. He's talking about the marriage feast and the feast of God. And he's coming in and he's, he's laying all this out 
for us to see. Or in Matthew 25, 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So he, he, when he's the, the sheep and the goats, he's got the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And, and he comes in and he, and he says, you know, depart. He sends the goats. He says, you are going to the eternal power, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is God coming in as, as we come in here. And he is allowing the results of our response to him to come to its final end. This is the, the time where God says, we have been issued an invitation. We have been sent an invitation. And that invitation is to come to the wedding. He has come and he has paid the price. Jesus paid the price. He came and he paid the bride price. And we are being invited into that. So he's paid it. We've been betrothed. And he is preparing. The question is, do we accept the invitation and prepare ourselves for him? It's an invitation to come into this relationship with him, this this marriage with him. And it's work. It's work. I've been married for 34 years, almost. I'm in year 34. September will be 34. And, and in September, I will have been married for 34 years. And after that, it's going to be 35, 36, 50, 60, however long we live, till death do us part. And the reason I say that is, is because we are committed, we are committed to one another and committed to doing the work to make it happen. It's work. Being married takes effort. It takes investment. It takes time. It takes giving up sometimes what you want for your spouse and vice versa. It means giving to one another of ourselves um, in our time and our um, talents and in everything in life. It is a faithful commitment. And that's what Jesus That's what he calls us. We don't always see it work out right in this But in the kingdom of God, it does. It does. Comes to the picture of eternity, it does. So this is God, as we come to this great supper of God, this is God allowing the results of our response to him come to its final end. For some, 
They accept the betrothal. They accept the invitation. They accept the purchase. And they prepare themselves. They move in that direction. Just like that bride would back there 2,000 years ago. She didn't just say, okay, he's come. He paid the price. Let's party until he comes back. She didn't do that. You say, I want to date as many boys as I can before, between now and then. I want, to, I want to enjoy life now because I know that I'm going to be married and everything's going to be fine. It didn't work that way. She prepared herself. And then he comes. And responding, him, responding to Jesus in faith, is that it's responding and preparing. It's responding knowing that he has paid the price and I am moving towards him. I'm preparing my heart for him and I am anxiously awaiting him to come and take me home. To come and take me to the feast that he has prepared for me. And, and to reject that, is to reject everything that is good in creation. And to reject Him results in eternal hell. That's where this goes. This is where we come in and we talk about heaven, we talk about hell, um, we, we talk about marriage, we, we talk about perseverance in the faith and, and all of these different things that we look at as doctrines in the Bible, they come together and we see it all working itself out and playing itself out in this picture. And, and as we come there, it says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And Jesus said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's, it's, it's not something to scream at people. It's not something to stand on the street corner with a sign and, and, and try to scare the snot out of people with. It's something to weep over. It is something that should drive us and move us to want to reach people with the gospel because God, this is not, this is not, the heart of God is not to cast people out. The heart of God is to betroth us to him. The heart of God is that none will perish, but all will come to the knowledge of him, that all will come to eternal life. The heart of God is for the people he made and created in his image to know him and to love him and to desire to know him more and more, that they will enter into this relationship with him. That's the heart of God. That's what he offers to us. And then he says, if you refuse my love, I will let you have what you want. And there it is. It's something to weep over. But it also drives us to the hallelujah for God's deliverance from sin, righteousness, and causes us to focus on sharing the gospel. That word hallelujah, 
Never occurs in the New Testament except for here. It's an Old Testament word. Praise God. Praise God. Praise Him. Praise Him. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These words are true. They're the words of God. This is what He calls us to. Let us rejoice, be glad. Let us rejoice, be glad. The only other time that phrase occurs is in Matthew. says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. So, as we come here, as we look, celebrate. Celebrate what you've done. Celebrate the life that you have. Celebrate that He's preparing a place. Celebrate that He is calling you to prepare for Him. Celebrate it. Because He has won the victory. It's done. It's finished. It's realized. It's there. And, and He is coming back for us. And ultimately, He will judge sin. All of the evil and everything else. And we wonder and why and why this and why that. We just need to understand that Satan and all of those who follow him will eternally be condemned. And by the way, just an aside, some people say, well, you know, hell just means that the lights go out and you're gone. No. Eternally. Cast alive into the eternal lake of fire. This is real. Just like heaven is forever, hell is forever. And and these are the things that God calls us to. So as we come down and and we wrap it up today, kind of come and... Uh, look God has an amazing plan and a purpose his love for us is beyond imagination he has purchased us with his blood and he's prepared for us a place in eternity that's the hope of the gospel that's what we're called to share that's what we're called to be we have been called into his army. If you look at the army going with him, they're robed in linen. That's the robes of the priest. They're coming in, and that's who we are. We are his people. We are called to take the word of God out into the world to share with people so that they can know Jesus and so that they can spend eternity with him um, as, as his people and in the place that he has for us. So as we come in, just a few quick things to look at in this. One, How are you preparing yourself for Christ? How do you prepare yourself on a daily basis for Christ? Look, just think about if if you're married, if you're not married, you know, where you look at, look at the picture though. In a marriage, you see one another regularly. You talk. You talk about things that matter. And if you don't, you're in trouble, right? Talk about the things that matter. And Jesus wants us to discuss the things in our lives that matter with Him. He wants us to discuss the things in His Word with 
wants us to know that. Are we preparing? Are you preparing yourself? Maybe you come bring it right back down to something really simple. Have you ever been betrothed to him? Have you ever truly turned to him to follow him and allowed him to save you from your sin and shame? And then, are you taking that message to the people around you? See the people around you. See people in desperate need of a Savior. Are they annoyance? Look, we've got to see people as people created in the image of God in desperate need of a Savior. Not knuckleheads and knotheads and, and, and people who drive us crazy, but people who need to know Christ. So that's the hope, and that's what we're called to pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you and we praise you for the love that you have for us, for the hope that we have in the gospel. Father, for the truth of your word, for the truth of the way that, that, that you judge, that you do that in a fair way. Father, having offered us life and forgiveness that we don't deserve in honoring our choices. Father, we ask today that you draw us close to you, that you would help us to prepare ourselves, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds, to prepare everything in our lives for you, for your coming, for the, the hope that we have in you. And Father, we pray for those around us who don't know you. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunity to share the truth of your word with them. Father, that you would give us the opportunity to share Jesus, that they would see him in our lives, that they would be drawn to him, and Lord, that we would be able to share with them how to know. Father, we pray this in Jesus. And I invite you this morning, if you've never come to that place of knowing Jesus, you can step down and say, hey, that, that's what I want. I want to know him. I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want to be at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Um, you can come down and, and, and we can talk about that. You can leave your name on that card, drop it in the box. We'll give you a, give you a call this week. Sit down and talk, answer questions, whatever it takes. But that's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. For the rest of us, who are you praying for? What are you doing? Prepare. Would you stand now as Kirk leads us? I think we're...